You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of a collection of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled Ancient Myths and the New Isis Mystery. Lecture 1 was given on the 4th of January, 1918. In the course of my recent public lectures in Switzerland, I have repeatedly said that the knowledge, the way of thinking currently prevailing, and indeed deeply rooted in the human soul, is ill-suited to deal with social and moral life. Present conditions can be restored to a healthy state only if people are able to find their way back to a thinking, a grasp of the universe that will give what lives in the soul a direct link with reality. I said that what prevails in the historical, social, and ethical life is, as it were, dreamt, slept through by humankind, that in any case abstract ideas are ill-suited to firmly grasping the impulses which must be at work in social life. I stated that in earlier times humans had recourse to myths rooted in older or, as we often say, atavistic experiences. They expressed in mythical form their thoughts concerning the world, whatever of the world's secrets entered their field of vision. Myths, the contents of mythology, can be viewed in the most manifold ways. And in fact, I described earlier a positively magnificent materialistic explanation of the myth by Dupuis. I'm not sure how to pronounce that. It's uh, capital D-U-P-U-I-S. Over the years, I have repeatedly examined one or another myth. However, myths are accessible from many points of view. And when something has been said about one of them, its content is far from being exhausted. Again and again, from different standpoints, different things may be asserted in regard to a myth. It would be very useful for our contemporaries to become acquainted with the nature of the mode of thought that underlies mythological representations. For the ideas which people have come to accept about the origin of myths and the creation of mythology belong ultimately to the realm of the modern superficial judgment which is so widespread. Embedded in the myths are deep truths that are more connected with reality than those truths expressed through the medium of modern natural science about this or that thing. Physiological, biological truths about humanity can be found in the myths, and the origin of what they express rests upon the consciousness of the connection between the human being as microcosm and the macrocosm. In particular, and this will be my subject today and tomorrow, when we look clearly at the nature of the thinking employed in the myths, we can grasp how deeply, or actually how shallowly, ordinary modern concepts are concerned with reality. It is useful, therefore, to recollect sometimes how myths were formed among neighboring peoples of the pre-Christian ages. The ancient Egyptians, the Greeks, and the Israelites were neighbors and very much interconnected culturally. Moreover, one can say that a great part of the thinking that still rules in the soul today is connected with the knowledge of the Egyptians, Greeks, and Israelites as expressed in the form of their myths.
The first myth I would like to discuss, but from a very specific standpoint, is the Osiris-Isis myth in Egyptian culture. I have already called your attention to Dupuis' contention that the Osiris-Isis myth is nothing more than a clerical lie, that the priests themselves had nothing more in mind than astronomical astrological events, but had fabricated such a myth for the common people. It is very interesting to note that the Greeks not only have a number of gods connected with their own life, but have whole generations of gods, the oldest generation being linked with Gaia and Uranus, the next generation with Kronos and Rhea, the Titans and all that is related to them, and the third generation with the successors of the Titans, Zeus and the whole Zeus circle. We shall see that the construction of such god myths springs from a special type of soul. The Greeks, Israelites, and Egyptians had different conceptions of their connection with the universe. Nevertheless, there was a deep relationship from a number of standpoints, including what I shall take as a basis today. In the age when the Osiris-Isis myth arose, as the representative of more profound truths, the Egyptians developed a knowledge which came from a longing to know the deeper foundations of the human soul. They desired in this way to turn their gaze to that element in the human soul, which not only lives between birth and death, but which passes through birth and death and remains alive between death and a new birth. Even external perceptions show how the Egyptians, in their preservation of mummies, in their peculiar cult of the dead, turned the eye of the soul to the element in the soul that passes through the gate of death and in a new form experiences new destinies when the human being treads the paths on the other side of death. What is it in the human being that passes through the gate of death and enters through birth into earthly existence? This question, more or less unconscious and unexpressed, underlay the thought and aspirations of the Egyptians. For it is this eternal, imperishable element, I have said this often in another form, that the Egyptian consciousness associates with the name of Osiris. Now, in order to have a foundation, let us consider the Osiris myth in its most important aspects, as it has been preserved. It is said that at one time Osiris ruled in Egypt. It is said that the Egyptians owed him principally the suppression of cannibalism, and that they owed him the plough, agriculture, the preparation of food from the plant kingdom, the building of cities, certain legal ideas, astronomy, rhetoric, even writing, and so on. It is said furthermore that Osiris not only introduced these beneficent arts and institutions among the Egyptians, but that he undertook journeys into other lands and there too similarly diffused useful arts. And in fact it was expressly stated that Osiris spread them not by the sword, but by persuasion. The story goes on to say that Osiris's brother Typhon wanted to institute new things in opposition to what had proved beneficial for the Egyptians over the centuries through the influence of Osiris. Typhon wanted to inaugurate all sorts of novelties, or as we would say today after the institutions founded by Osiris had existed for hundreds of years. Typhon launched a revolution while Osiris was absent spreading his institutions among other peoples. 
This differs a little from the latest example of revolution, in which, whatever novelties were introduced, it was not done while the other was absent, extending beneficent institutions among other nations. Anyway, between Osiris and Typhon, that is how it went, the myth proceeds. Isis, who was Osiris's consort and was waiting at home in Egypt, prevented Typhon's innovations from being really sweeping. That enraged Typhon, and when Osiris returned from his wanderings, Typhon slew him and got rid of the dead body. Isis had to search a long time for the corpse. She found it at last in Phoenicia and brought it back home to Egypt. Typhon now became even angrier and tore the dead body to pieces. Isis collected the pieces, and out of each piece, by using spices and other arts, she made a being again, which had the complete form of Osiris. She then gave to the priests of the land a third of the whole territory of Egypt, so that Osiris's burial place should be kept a secret, but his service and worship performed with renewed vigor. There is then a remarkable addition to this myth. Osiris came back from the underworld, after his worship had already been inaugurated in Egypt, and busied himself with the instruction of Horus, his son, whom Isis had borne after his death. Then it is told that Isis was imprudent enough to release Typhon, whom she had succeeded in imprisoning. Thereupon Horus, her son, became angry, tore the crown from her head, and replaced it with cow's horns. Typhon was defeated in two battles with the assistance of Hermes, the Roman Mercury, Hermes for the Greeks. A kind of Horus cult, the cult of the son of Osiris and Isis, was instituted. One way or another, the Greeks heard of these Egyptian stories of world mysteries. It is remarkable how often the Greeks spoke of the same being that was spoken of in Egypt, or in Phoenicia, or Lydia, and so forth. These conceptions of the divinities flowed into one another, as it were, and this is very characteristic and significant. When the Greeks heard the name Osiris, they could picture something from it. They identified what the Egyptians understood under the name Osiris, with something of which they, too, had certain concepts. Although the name was different, what the Egyptian conceived of as Osiris was not foreign to the Greek. Please take note of this. It, it is very significant. We find the whole thing once more in the German title Germania of Tacitus. There Tacitus described the gods that he found in the north a hundred years after the founding of Christianity, and he described them with Roman names. He gave Roman names to the gods whom he found there, despite the fact that these gods had, of course, other names. He recognized their being and could assign them Roman names. We find in the title Germania that he knew that in the north people had a god that was the same god as Hercules, and so on. That is very significant, and it points to something very deep and meaningful. It shows that in those ancient times there was a certain common consciousness concerning spiritual things. The Greeks knew how to picture something as Osiris, independent of the name, because they had something similar. What was concealed behind the name Osiris was not unfamiliar to them. We must keep this well in mind to recognize that despite the differences of separate myths, a certain community of soul existed. One wishes at times that there might be as much common understanding among modern human beings as, say, between the Greeks and the Egyptians, so that the Greeks understood what the Egyptians expressed. 
A Greek would never have uttered as much nonsense about Egyptian conceptions as Woodrow Wilson is able to think up in one week about European conceptions, if one can call it thinking. According to the Greeks, Kronos had begotten an illegitimate son by Rhea, and this irregularly begotten son was Osiris. So, just think, the Greeks hear that the Egyptians have an Osiris, and the Greeks on their part relate that Osiris is the son of Kronos and Rhea, but not begotten in the right way. In fact, the incorrectness of his conception was such that Helios, the sun god, in his anger about the matter, made Rhea barren. Thus, on one hand, the Greeks find a certain relationship between their own conception of the gods and the Egyptian ones. But on the other hand, what the Egyptians, in a certain sense, formed as their highest concept of a god, the Osiris concept, is for the Greeks connected with an irregular origin from the Titan race, from Kronos and Rhea. We can get a first impression of this, albeit a surface impression, and we shall need to dig much deeper presently if we are clear about the Egypt if we are clear that the Egyptians sought to learn of the eternal part of the human soul. They sought to know that which traverses births and deaths, but in order to know of this eternal part in life, they expressly turned the soul's gaze beyond death. To the people of Egypt, through whom the the Greeks learned of Osiris. He is no longer the god of the living, but the god of the dead, the god who sits on the throne of the world and passes judgment when the human being has gone through the gate of death, that is, the god whom humans have to meet after death. At the same time, however, the Egyptians knew that the same god who judges humans after death has, at one time, ruled over the living. The moment one puts these ideas together, one is no longer as inclined to agree with Dupuis' verdict that it was only a matter of astronomical events. There is much to captivate our attention in Dupuis' judgments, but on closer inspection they reveal themselves as very superficial. I have said that the Egyptians, in the age when the Greeks received the Osiris concept from them, directed their mind above all to the human soul after death. This lay far from the Greek mind. To be sure, the Greeks, too, spoke of the human soul after death, but inasmuch as they spoke of their gods, they did not really speak of the Osiris nature of such gods as primarily to sit in judgment after death. The race to which Zeus belonged was a race of gods for the living, Zeus, Hera, Pallas Athena, Mars, Apollo, and so on. Humans preferred to look up to this world, when they turn their mind's eye to the world to which human beings belong between birth and death. But these gods were, so to say, the last divine race of the three successive generations of gods to which the Greeks turned their gaze. As you know, the oldest generation of gods is connected to Uranus and Gaia, or better said Gaia and Uranus. They were the earliest divine pair together with all the siblings and so on, who belonged to them. From this divine pair were descended the Titans, to whom Kronos and Rhea also belonged, and above all Oceanus. As you know, according to the myth, Uranus had evoked the wrath of his spouse, Gaia, through certain cruel regulations. So she prevailed upon Kronos, their son, to make his father on the world throne impotent, and thus we see the old divine rulership replaced by the younger one, 
by Kronos and Rhea and all that belongs with them. You know, too, that in the Greek myth, Kronos had the characteristic, somewhat unsavory in various respects, of swallowing all his children as soon as they were born, which was not pleasant for the mother, Rhea. I am calling contention to various features which we shall particularly need. And you know, too, that she saved Zeus and brought him up to overthrow Kronos, just as Kronos had overthrown Uranus, only in another way, so that once again a new race of gods arrives. And then we have Hera and Zeus, with all the brothers and sisters and their children, and so on. An important feature in the myth, which I must mention since we will need it if we wish to regard the myth as foundation for all sorts of world conceptions, is the following. Before he overcame the Titans and cast them into Tartarus, Zeus had prevailed on the goddess Metis, the goddess of cunning, to provide him with an emetic so that all the children swallowed by Kronos could be brought again to the light of day. Thus Zeus could have his brothers and sisters again, for of course they had been in Kronos's body. Zeus alone had been rescued by his mother Rhea. So we have three successive generations of gods, Gaia Uranus, Uranus overthrown through Gaia because of his cruelty, supplanted by the children Kronos and Rhea, then Kronos overthrown again through Zeus, likewise at the instigation of Rhea. In the Zeus circle we have the gods who meet us as actual Greek history makes its appearance. Now, I should like to call special attention to a very significant feature of this Greek mythology that is not stressed clearly enough, despite its being one of the most important features. The macrocosm is ruled by the three successive races of gods, but while Gaia and Uranus, Rhea and Kronos, Hera and Zeus are ruling, the human being, according to the Greek conception, is already everywhere in existence. Humanity is unquestionably there already. Therefore, at a time when Kronos and Rhea had not yet reigned, when the rulers were still Gaia and Uranus, but then especially when Kronos reigned with Rhea and Zeus was not yet in possession of the Emetic, according to the Greeks, there were already humans upon the earth. And what is more, as the Greeks told it, they lived a happier life than in later times. The later human beings are descended from those earlier ones. In other words, the Greek consciousness was the following. Up above rules Zeus, but we human beings descend from other forefathers who were not yet ruled by Zeus. This is an important feature of Greek theology. The Greeks venerated their Zeus, their Hera, their Pallas Athena, but were quite clear that they had not been created by these gods, what one would generally call created, but that humans predated by far the reign of these gods. That this is especially important for the Greek gods can strike you when you look at the matter from the point of view of Jewish theology. It is, of course, quite unthinkable to ascribe the same feature to the Jewish teaching. You could not possibly imagine the Old Testament relating human beings to ancestors who had not yet come under the rulership of Yahweh and the Elohim. Thus we have here something radically different in the Greek teachings about the gods. The Greek looks up to the gods and knows they indeed are ruling now, but they have nothing to do with what I call creation of the human race. This was absolutely impossible within the Old Testament conception. In the Old Testament, those whom humanity looked upon as gods were, in the main, far more concerned with the creation of the human being. 
In observing the course of world events, it is indispensable to consider such things. The point is not merely to form concepts, but to be able to form concepts that connect one with reality. The especially characteristic, the especially representative concepts, those are the ones we must have in mind. And with this we have considered an important feature of Greek mythology. Let us look at it some more. When the Greeks looked up to the gods, they did not have the consciousness that they had been created by these gods. The human beings were already there, as we have said, before these gods had assumed their rulership. What these gods were able to do was, for the Greeks, quite a respectable amount, but they could not produce a human race on a planet. In the Greek consciousness these gods could not produce a human race. Now, what actually were the gods of the Zeus circle, the Olympian gods, for the Greek consciousness? To form even an historical concept of what these gods were, I mean now in the Greek consciousness, we have of course said various things about these gods, but let us place ourselves in the Greek consciousness. What were they? Well, they were not beings that would normally interact with humans. In fact, they dwelt on Olympus. They dwelt in the clouds and so on. They merely paid visits, sometimes sympathetic and sometimes unsympathetic visits. Zeus in particular, as you know, sometimes paid sympathetic or unsympathetic visits to the human world. In certain respects the gods were useful, but they also did things about which modern people, who are somewhat more narrow-minded than the Greeks, would probably go to court and cite Zeus as a co-respondent in a divorce suit and so on. In any case, these gods had a half-divine, half-human connection with humanity, and such beings, so it was thought, are not materialized in the flesh. When Zeus wanted to conduct his affairs, he assumed all sorts of guises, didn't he? A swan, a golden rain, and so on. Thus, in ordinary life, these gods were not incarnated in the flesh. But on the other hand, if we look deeper, we find that the Greeks had the consciousness that these gods were connected with humans who lived in primeval times, far more than looking up to the connection with the stars, as Dupuis supposed, the Greeks looked up to primeval human beings and established a connection between the concept of a Zeus being slash nature, please note exactly how I formed the sentence, for that is the point, and some ruler of a long past age. <clears throat> please note that I have not said that the Greeks had the idea that what they meant by Zeus had been an ancient ruler. Instead, I said that which they pictured as Zeus, they associated with an ancient ruler who had lived in a long bygone ages, in long bygone ages. For the kind of connection with Zeus, or for that matter with other gods, was a somewhat complicated one. Let us look more closely at the words so that we can form an idea of what really underlies them. Let us suppose that at some time a personality had lived in Thrace, a region in northern Greece, on whom the Zeus concept was fastened. Now the Greek, even the quite ordinary Greek, was quite clear. I do not, as it were, venerate this ancestor, nor do I venerate the single individuality which has lived in this ancestor. Nevertheless, I venerate something which had some connection with this ancient forefather, this ancient king of Thrace or of Epirus. The Greek had, in fact, this idea. <clears throat> there was once such a king, in whose whole being not only his own individuality lived, but the individuality of a supersensible being. 
This had expressed itself, had lived upon the earth by descending into a human being. The Zeus concept was not made earthly in this way. It was rather brought into connection with an ancient ruler who at one time had furnished the garment, or let us say, the dwelling place for this Zeus being. Thus the Greek differentiated essentially that which he conceived of as Zeus from the human individuality who had lived in the body to which the Zeus concept was referred. But the Zeus rulership, the rule of Zeus and the gods, took its starting point, as it were, from the fact that Zeus had descended, had lived in a human being, had found his center there in order to work in the being of humanity, but then went on working, no longer as an ordinary human, but in fact as an Olympian. And it was the same in the case of the other Greek gods. Why did the Greeks form this conception, that there was once a ruler who was possessed by Zeus, but that now there is no longer a ruler who can be possessed by Zeus, and Zeus only rules as a supersensible being? Because the Greeks knew that human evolution had progressed, that it had changed, well, that's the answer. <laughs> in other words, the Greeks knew that there were ancient times when human beings could have imaginations in a particularly outstanding degree. A certain clairvoyance naturally remained for some few, but the authority of the imaginations had disappeared. The beings who can still have real imaginations can hold sway only in supersensible realms for the course of human life between birth and death. This is the essence of what the Greeks pictured to themselves concerning their gods. They are beings who can imagine. But the time has passed when these beings who can imagine could enter into human bodies. For human bodies are no longer adapted to imaginations. We are governed by a race of beings who can have imaginations while we no longer can have them. The Greeks had a quite unsentimental concept of their gods. In any case, it would have been rather difficult to be sentimental about Zeus. Yet the Greeks said to themselves, in the quiet of their hearts, I shall again elaborate the matter somewhat, one must add detail when one wants to be quite clear, we humans are going through a definite evolution. We have developed from atavistic clairvoyance to intuition, inspiration, imagination. Now we must have ordinary objective thinking. But the gods have not ventured there. They have remained in their imaginative consciousness. Otherwise they would have to be humans and wander on earth in the flesh. It did not suit them. So thought the Greeks in their unsentimental way of regarding the gods. It did not suit them to pass over to objective thinking. So they have not descended to the earth, but kept to their imaginative consciousness. In this way, however, they rule over us, for they have more power, as it were, since the imaginative concept, when utilized fully, is more powerful than the objective concept. <clears throat> From this, however, you see that the Greeks look back to a time when humans' formation of concepts, their observation and perception, were different. And this retrospective look went hand in hand with the ideas they formed of the gods. Thus they looked back to Zeus and Hera and said, They are ruling over us now. At one time we were like them, but we have developed further and have become weaker in the process. Therefore they can rule us. They have remained in the condition prevalent at that time. The Greeks ascribed to their gods what we today would call a certain luciferic quality. 
and those beings who had remained at the imagination stage, this was elaborated in the Greek consciousness, were themselves the successors of the beings who remained at the inspiration stage. Hera and Zeus stopped at imagination, Rhea and Kronos at inspiration, Gaia and Uranus at intuition. You see, the Greeks examined their own soul, and they connected the genealogies of the gods with the evolution of humanity and the different states of consciousness. This connection was felt, it was perceived. The eldest gods, Gaia and Uranus, were beings whose whole inner relation to the world was shaped by the fact that they had an intuitive consciousness. They wanted to remain at the stage of intuition, and those at the stage of inspiration rose up against them. And again, the inspired ones wished to stay with inspiration, and those living in the imaginative consciousness set themselves against them. The inspired ones were overcome by the imagining ones. We live as human beings, and above us stand the imagining ones. Now you know that in the Prometheus myth, the Greeks already expressed the desire for a weapon in their struggle against the imagining ones. The Greeks arranged their divinities in chronological layers, expressive of the way they looked back to earlier stages of consciousness of the essence that was in parallel fashion evolving as humanity. The Greeks made clear that in their mind this was connected with their retrospective look upon the gods. Just think how deeply significant this is for our understanding of the Greek consciousness. Looking back to the generations of the gods, The Greeks looked back to the past in their own mental life. They connected the ancient intuitive beings with Gaia, the earth, and Uranus, the heavens, and connected the inspirational gods with Rhea and Kronos. In the case of Gaia and Uranus, we can still perceive what they were. Rhea and Kronos, on the other hand, are described as titans. What are they actually? Now, for some centuries... Humanity has lost practically all consciousness of what lies at the foundation of all this. But let me remind you that a few hundred years ago, in the Middle Ages, a human being was brought into connection with three fundamental elements, salt, mercury, and sulfur. You can still find this knowledge in Jacob Burma and Paracelsus, even as late as St. Martin's time. Jacob Burma still makes the following notation, S-A-L, sal, equals salt, mercure, equals quicksilver, sulphus equals sulphur. What was understood by this was not identical, but yet was related to the Greeks' meaning when they spoke of Gaia Uranus, Rhea Kronos, Hera Zeus. For you see, Kronos drove Uranus from world rulership, and Gaia became for practical purposes a widow. What happened to her after that? She became what is called Earth. Not the ordinary earth which we find outside, but the earth that human beings carry in themselves, that is, salt. If humans could make conscious use of the salt within them, then they would have intuition, as the investigator of nature in the Middle Ages knew. So a process which had still been alive in the old Gaia-Uranus time was, has sunk into the deep recesses of human nature. <clears throat> a more recent process which has also sunk deep into human nature, can be described as the Rhea-Kronos process. The Greeks 
said that the power of Rhea was once widespread, and Kronos represented the forces that confronted Rhea. Kronos was overthrown. What has been left? Well, just as from Uranus Gaia the dead salt has been left, so from Kronos Rhea the fluid Mercury has been left. The fluid in humans that can take a drop formation has been left behind. But humans cannot make conscious use of that either. It has sunk into unconscious depths. This, of course, was a very, very long time ago, and in the time of the Greeks it was already gone by, for the Greeks said to themselves, Zeus's time upon earth was in the long ago primeval ages, but at that time humans could make use of the sulfur to be found in them. If humans could consciously use their salt, they would be able to use intuition in an atavistic way. If they could consciously use mercury, the fluid element, they would be able to use inspiration and imagination if they could use sulfur, not in the altered sense that has come to us through successive transmissions, but in the actual sense that the alchemists of the Middle Ages still understood it when they spoke of the quote-unquote philosophical sulfur. <clears throat> Today there is also a philosophical sulfur. Professors of philosophy manufacture vast amounts of sulfurous hot air, but it is not quite what the alchemists had in mind. They were referring to an imaginative consciousness, an atavistic imagining, which was connected with the use of this active sulfur in humans. The Greeks and the priests of their mysteries, for the mysteries of salt, mercury, and sulfur, are ancient, also said that human beings, through their evolution, have overcome the atavism that would allow them to make an atavistic use of sulfur. But Zeus and his circle have withdrawn into the supersensible realm, and avail themselves of the sulfur processes. Hence Zeus can hurl his lightning. If, like Zeus, human beings could hurl lightning, that is, transform the sulfur through imagination into reality, if they could inwardly and consciously hurl lightning, then they would use imagination atavistically. That is what the Greeks wished to say when they said that Zeus could hurl lightning. As late as St. Martin, the sulfur of the alchemists was known to have meant something different from the ordinary earthly sulfur, which could at most be said, excuse the plain speaking, to be the excrement of what was understood by St. Martin and the philosophers before him as the real sulfur, which they also called the philosophical sulfur. And St. Martin still speaks of thunder and lightning's real connection with the processes of the macrocosmic, or one could say the cosmic sulfur. Today, many of the physical, natural, scientific explanations that creep into science have a touch of brimstone in them, but this is not exactly a philosophical sulfur. Of course, the really clever people of today are far beyond talking of sulfur processes in the cosmos when thunder and lightning arise, for lightning and thunder arise, as any elementary physics book will tell you, through some sort of friction processes in the clouds. Not that it is possible to find anything really logical in what is said about lightning and thunder. Wet clouds and their mutual action are supposed to create the electricity which comes about through thunder and lightning. But if an electrical experiment is made in the schoolroom, each piece of apparatus is most carefully dried because the least dampness prevents any electricity from arising. It would seem, then, that the clouds up there are not wet after all. The same teacher who can do nothing with a damp or even not completely bone-dry electric machine 
will at the same time explain that wet clouds are supposed to be connected with the creation of electricity. It certainly gets mixed up, doesn't it? I wanted only to say that in St. Martin we still find the consciousness that this element of which the Greeks dreamt when they spoke of Hera and Zeus had something to do with lightning and thunder. The way it is, even superficial ideas can indicate to us that certain natural processes, the salt, mercury and sulfur processes as they were conveyed in earlier times, are linked with what the Greeks possessed in their mythology. Let us not lose sight of this basic fact. We need such fundamental concepts in order to make the right transition to our own time. Thus the Greeks looked back to generations of gods, to conditions that had ceased to exist but that had been perceptible to earlier ages of humanity. They connected what lived in their gods with what we call natural processes. Mythology was, therefore, at the same time a sort of natural science. And the more one learns to know mythology, the deeper the natural science to be found in it, only a different natural science, one which is at the same time a science of the soul. This is how the Greeks thought, and how the Egyptians, too, conceived of their Osiris, who once had ruled but now was in the underworld. Do you notice how different the things are, and yet how they can all be traced back to a common type? Whereas the Greeks refer to earlier ages, when a being like Zeus, who in their own time could live only supersensibly, could actually assume a human form, so too the Egyptians could point to an older age, when Osiris, or many Osiruses, the number is irrelevant, ruled, an age when the gods descended into human beings, when they were present, but that time has passed and the Egyptians could no longer find Osiris by looking to a human being on the physical plane. They had to look to the world which human beings enter when they go through the portal of death. Thus the Egyptians too harked back to an earlier stage in the evolution of human consciousness, when they distinguished between the Osiris who could once wander the earth and the Osiris who can now no longer wander the earth, who belongs solely to the kingdom of death. We confine ourselves today to the two mythologies, and tomorrow we'll touch briefly upon the Old Testament teachings before we draw any conclusions. But we can make the following statement. The Greek and Egyptian consciousness of their gods expressed a remembrance of the ancient times of atavistic clairvoyance. The gods have vanished. They are no longer there. Excuse me, here. The descriptions of the destinies which human beings once shared with the gods, whether with Zeus or Cronus in Greece or with Osiris in Egypt, expressed this other knowledge. Looking farther back, the relationship of human beings to the macrocosm was different from what it is now. This relationship has altered. <coughs> Looking back in this way to earlier ages, when the gods walked among humans, had a distinct reality for these ancient peoples. Since they knew that humans in these ages stand as microcosm to macrocosm, in a way different than in their own time, the old atavistic clairvoyance actually faded away in the fourth post-Atlantean epoch. This is what Greek mythology sought to express, as did the Egyptian Osiris mythology. The end of lecture one. <clears throat>